Hey, welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm Chief ABC News. Uh, what is it, Chief ABC News White House Correspondent? Jonathan Carl. And I'm Rick Klein. I'm ABC News Political Director. John, we're still working on your title just like we are your guitar skills. It's, you know, I'm telling you, man, it's, uh, it's a whole new world there. Uh, I've, I've spent now uh, five days covering the Trump presidency. Almost five days. We're, we're in day five. How's that going for you? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's, uh, Anything going on over there? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the uh, by the way, we should let you know that we have a we have a very important guest that we're going to get to in a little bit. Uh, amidst all of the stuff that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, we have a very big, very big deal that's going to happen next week. President Trump has told us that he will make his nomination to fill the Supreme Court vacancy left by Antonin Scalia on Thursday. For all the back and forth and the tweets and this and that, this is like a lifetime appointment that could help. Uh, you know, shape the direction of the court for the next uh, half century or so. I mean, we'll see. Uh, but a very big deal. So we're going to talk to Leonard Leo, who is the uh, with the Federalist Society and has been very involved with uh, the Trump team going back to the campaign and formulating the list of possible uh, Supreme Court justices. We're going to ask Leonard Leo who Donald Trump is going to pick. I, mean, I think news. I know, by that the might way. Make news. Well, you've been reporting that, that, that I you think know, I know. So don't, I don't give it up yet. All Let's right, get good. to the other. But, but Rick, you asked. I mean, this, is, uh, this has been a, just an absolute blur. First of all, covering the White House, there hasn't been a lot of sleep uh, personally. So if I sound a little bit less coherent uh, than usual today, you'll know what's going on. Um, but we've had uh, you know, a pace of, of events. Uh, he's, he's signing these executive orders, memoranda, uh, various things that we don't really know what they are. But he's signing a lot of things. Um, he is uh, meeting with – he's had three separate – four separate meetings with congressional leadership uh, already over the course of two business days uh, at the White House. Business leaders, labor leaders. He had the, the, the car execs in separately. Um, he's uh, – you know, I mean I, there's a lot of activity. And then we have all the sideshows. Yeah, and, and the sideshows have become the main show so often already. We had yeah. him make that unusual decision to, to have his White House press secretary go out there, dispute crowd sizes. Uh, and now he, he's, he is telling leaders in Congress that he believes that voter fraud cost him the popular vote. Um, he, just r- earlier today, John, I was over at, at the White House with you and the gang because our colleague David Muir got uh, the first TV interview with uh, with President Trump is going to air tonight. It'll be a great uh, and and really interesting interview in a lot of different Absolutely. directions. And one of them is the, the, is about voter fraud. He really does believe it, uh, and 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 continues to insist that uh, that millions of Americans voted illegally and that he's going to be on this. And to me, the, the through line with that and the 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 quibbles that he had over the photos of his of his crowd size is that he wants the voters who voted for him to be respected. He wants himself to get that respect as someone who's a legitimate president. And any suggestion, whether it's outright or just subtle, that he's not legitimate or that he shouldn't take seriously his crowds or the number of his supporters, he gets upset about. And you heard Sean Spicer tell, tell, tell that us directly from the podium, that, uh, that it's, it's upsetting to him and to the White House to see that undercut. So that's one thing I think we'll know he's going to be defensive on throughout. There's no question that he's sensitive to this, and and you know what the way it's been explained to me is that at every turn, at every turn of it, from his, the day he announced his campaign, even before he announced his campaign, people have questioned the legitimacy of Donald Trump. They question whether or not he was a legitimate potential candidate for president. They question whether or not he was a legitimate real candidate for president. They question not whether they question whether he was a legitimate front runner, even after he moved to the head of the polls. And they question whether or not he would actually 
win the uh, win the nomination. He could be blocked at the convention. He could be blocked after right. the convention. Uh, the the uh, he blocked after the election with the uh, the electoral college. All the talk about not winning the popular vote. All the talk about the Russians t- tilting the election. All the talk of Comey tilting the election. Nobody willing to give him credit for winning the presidency, at least in their minds. I think in reality, he's living at the White House. A heck of a lot of people have given him credit for the fact that he is the president of the United right. States. He's in charge. He's, He's got charge. the codes. Yeah, and, and that part won't change either. And, and that's, that's interesting to me because you're, you're starting to see real action. And he is delivering on a number of campaign promises off the bat, moving ahead with that border wall, some version, a kind of modified version of the Muslim ban. You're seeing the agenda move. Uh, I'm struck still to this day by, by how many conventions of Washington have changed already. Even the images of, uh, of the congressional leaders at the White House, that was something that Obama virtually never did. Uh, you were, you were as part of the poll the other day. Uh, you had a chance to, to get a question to him, and he interacted with you and did that. A, just the small things. And, and you also made an observation about how busy the schedule is. He's doing a lot and is seen a lot publicly and privately. We're hearing lots about the meetings that he's having. Even the fact that he said, my Supreme Court nominee will be named next Thursday. That used to be like a big Washington secret, the the, the subterfuge and the cloak and dagger. When is it going to be? He's basically saying hey, it's going to happen, and here it is. And by the way, just a little insight into the process and to show you the kind of improvisational decision-making, which is so different from what we saw in the Obama White House, and definitely different than we saw in the Clinton campaign, where you know twenty people would be involved in signing <laughs> off on a tweet. Um, the, the way it was described to me, these executive orders, and let's be clear, some of them, most of them, are not actually executive orders. Some are uh, executive memoranda, which are basically um, press releases or just guidance for agencies. Yeah, they're, they're guidance, they're, but yeah. but 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 they but they do have the force of coming from the president, and uh, and you know they're, they're not they're not insignificant, but they're, but they're not executive orders. Um, but it, the way it was described to me is, uh, and the ones that were issued on Monday. Uh, that um, he was given a kind of a, a, a actually this is um, now uh, Tuesday was was the one on, 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 on the on the pipes which one was the pipes that was Tuesday <laughs> okay okay so also known as yesterday yeah also known as yesterday it seems like about uh, six months ago okay so um, the way it was described to me so we know he, he had the meeting with uh, the business leaders he had the meeting with with labor leaders during the course of the meeting with labor leaders he asked them what else can we do. And the suggestion was made, well, you know, when we do major projects, you know, that the, the, the federal government sign off on, like these oil pipelines, why don't you insist that if they're going to do it, they got to use American products, use American steel. So, aha! So later in the day, he was given the list of wh- which which executive orders are we going to are we going to do tomorrow morning, and uh, he picked which ones he was going to do. Uh, it was the Keystone Pipeline. It was the Dakota. Uh, the Dakota pipeline, and then uh, he said, "Well, now wait a minute. Uh, what about? Why don't we do something on this? Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta use American steel." Wow. So they're like, "Okay, let's run to the drawing board." And then the next morning, he's got this thing that hadn't even been in part of the process. You know, quick run up to White House Counsel's office. Let's sign off. What can we do now? Who knows what force that this stuff right. will actually have? Um, but it's very improvisational, and it's very much driven by what he. You know, where his mind is at that specific moment. And, and another thing that I'm struck by, and that's fascinating, but another thing I'm struck by in terms of this new era that we're in is the idea that the, the, the White House press secretary would defend from the podium the beliefs of the president without 
actually finding an obligation to talk about the facts behind that belief. You know, an extraordinary was, moment. Yeah, it was. And there was a moment in that press conference from our old colleague and our always friend, Jeff Zeleny. Yeah. Jeff Zeleny asked Sean Spicer, because Spicer was ke- kept on referring to, well, the president believes this. Right. The president believes millions of votes were cast. The president, this is something the president believes. He's believed a long time. So Zeleny finally said, do you believe it? Yeah. You were at, you were a top official at the RNC during the campaign. Do you believe there were millions of illegal votes cast? Yeah. Which, by the way, is a question that's never really, and I love Jeff, and I actually liked that. That was a clever question, given the extraordinary circumstances we were witnessing. But you really never asked the White House press secretary, do you personally believe what, I mean, you're, you're speaking on behalf of the president. But it was very interesting. The reason why Jeff asked it is, I don't know if there's anybody else in that building that believes it besides the president. You, you can't even find anyone else on the internet, practically, that believes it. It's, it's, it's not even that it's... Uh, a fake news idea that's floating around there. Th- there's nobody that says that other than the president of the United States. We've looked I and mean, we've talked to groups and even some of the the kind of strongest about uh, voter ID laws and voter fraud are not going as far as the president of the United States is. And now he's he's kind of taken maybe a quarter step back and saying he's going to he wants this investigation. But that's an extraordinary thing. And And to my mind, John, you immediately think about what happens when this is not merely a, a kind of sideshow of political discussion. He won. It doesn't really matter. There's no, no one's life is impacted by whether or not he won the popular vote. But there will be information that comes to the president that, it, that impacts American jobs. There will be uh, many instances that Im, Im, impact American lives, life and death, war or peace decisions. And if you, if you don't have a baseline of facts to go off of, if you're not confident that the president of the United States is basing his views on facts but rather his beliefs – that's another level. That that's that is something that's new to me. Yeah, and I I think and there's a, there, look there's a challenge covering this White House. I've already seen in, in five days. They, they, there's so much activity and there are so many kind of last minute. The president this morning, I guess, you know, woke up and you have the tweet announcing that he's you know of course going to order an investigation into the voter fraud. Uh, last night, he uh, tweeted out that uh, if Chicago doesn't get its crime under control, he's going to send in the feds. Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of like pinging, you know, the, 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 the pinging back and forth. Uh, any one of these could be major stories. And yeah. You have to decide what is real and what are you going to cover. And I think that the key for us is to try to focus on what he is actually doing. You always have to focus on what the president says because the bully pulpit, that's the power of the presidency. But what is actually going on? What is actually happening with these executive memoranda and orders? What's happening with the plan on Obamacare, replay, repeal and replace? What is happening with what he is he was re, redefining America's place in the world? Um, I mean, it was interesting on the Chicago thing, which sounded like a very big deal, sending the feds. He was asked about that by Lynn Sweet, who I know uh, we all you know, know well, the Chicago, uh, great, great Chicago reporter. Um, you know, well, what's he doing? What's the timeline? What, 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 what exactly does it mean to send in the feds? And Sean, basically, I mean, almost like seen like he hadn't really, they hadn't discussed it at all. He said, yeah. "Well, maybe you know, we we want to talk with uh, with Chicago authorities about uh, giving assistance, giving some federal aid." That doesn't sound like sending it in the feds to me. I mean, I don't know. And they, that's so that's Sean Spicer's. Job. And he said, "Maybe you know, we don't know when timeline. <laughs> I don't know, but but it, you know, you see a tweet from the commander in chief, you start thinking, what are we going to do?" And that's so that that's Sean Spicer's job is to be explain explaining to the public what the president believes. Equally important, maybe more important. I'm looking to people 
like Mark Short o- over at the uh, the legislative office now. I mean, how is he going to define the president? To we should Congress. get him on this podcast. By He'd the be way, a great booking if we could do it. If he'd ever come on, but but he, he, think about that. I mean, it's one thing for us and the public to have lots of questions, and the and or the press to have questions, the public to have questions. Members of Congress don't know what's going on. I mean, Mark is the liaison between the White House and and Congress. He's the director of legislative affairs. Smart guy. And look, you, you need to. Uh, so much of what the president wants to do is only so much you can do by signing those little uh, memorandum or executive orders in the Oval Office. You need to get Congress to enact your agenda. And they and don't know. They, they ask, he, so the president's going to be meeting with the congressional Republicans. They've got the same kind of questions we have. So what does this repeal say, I mean, let, let me just do a little devil's advocate with you yeah. on this. What, what I have noticed, and again, we're on day five. One of those days was a Sunday. Uh, another was a uh, a Saturday. Are we counting Friday and day that was five, the inauguration? <laughs> okay, so look, we've only had two full. Yeah, uh, we're not days. even. I mean, okay, here yeah. we are. So um, he's he's been hauling the congressional leadership down to the White House. I mean, you know, Obama went went a long time without sure. seeming to have any apparent but, contact with congressional leaders, including in his own party. That doesn't mean that they know. What the I understand, is, but at though. least they're there difference. and they can say what's going on. Sure. Get a little lecture maybe on the illegal vote count and how he really won the popular vote. I understand. But it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic. I mean, I, 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 think that, I think that that is the fascinating thing is to track his relationship with Congress. And we've discussed this before and speculated. When is he going to break with the Republicans and try to work with Democrats? He is obviously not a particularly ideological, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, president. Um, he is somebody who's kind of new to the Republican Party, let's face it. And uh, I think he's also going to be deeply, deeply frustrated with the pace of legislation. And just in that in that meeting he had earlier in the week, Mitch McConnell came out and said, I enjoyed hearing tr- uh, the president and Chuck Schumer talk about all the people in New York that they, they know. It seems like President Trump is more at home, more comfortable talking to people like Chuck Schumer, like Nancy Pelosi, than even Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan. Yeah, and he doesn't drink, so he can't do the bourbon summit. <laughs> By the way, that, that, that was a moment. You know, you remember we uh, – we, it was quite a stir caused after the uh, the, the midterm elections in – 2010? Was it, was it 2010? Or well, was it? 14, 14 is when the Republicans took over the Senate. So yeah. why don't you have a drink with Mitch McConnell? Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And uh, and he and there was supposed to be a bourbon summit. We never got that. And now Trump doesn't drink. Uh, but I, I will I will segue briefly into bourbon discussion. When I found out that, that Mitch McConnell's favorite bourbon is actually a Manhattan, yeah, I was a little disheartened about yeah, what that it's, means. It's so a problematic. And but I heard you 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 picked up a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. Uh, uh, you know, I'm actually, you. Van, the, to be to be fair, it was the Van Winkle. Bourbon, the reserve. 12 year. Yeah, it was the yeah, twelve year. Yeah, it was twelve yeah. year reserve. But I was very pleased with it, nonetheless. Right, Thank right. you for Have thank you, already, you for noticing. You finished it off. Is it? I, I haven't even opened it yet. It's sitting waiting for me. So you know, we're going to be uh, joined here in just momentarily by Leonard Leo with the Federalist Society. I I have been talking to a lot of people about this again. This could be this will potentially, I mean, almost certainly be the most lasting decision that the president will make in his first days in office, uh, a Supreme Court justice. And I, I've been told that Neil Gorsuch is a, uh, is a absolute leading contender. Uh, not, not, not the only one. The president could change his mind, but, but seems to be likely heading in that direction. And what's interesting about Gorsuch is, first of all, he's a guy from Colorado. Yeah. Uh, so he's a, 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 out of the Northeastern Corridor, though he did go to, to, uh, to Columbia and Harvard Law. So. You know, it's only, right so, only so far. By the way, what, what is it with with Harvard and Yale Law? I mean, they, that's a prerequisite almost these days. You'd think you think President Trump, if anyone, would break that. But yeah, 
it's it's something. No, he's got the right pedigree, and and forty nine years old. So youngest since Clarence Thomas uh, would be as a as a Supreme Court nominee. And a lot of folks have talked, and we talked to Leonard Leo about this. A lot of people have praised him, have talked about that writing style he has, and as and being they, kind of Scalia esque. Exactly, he's been called Scalia two point oh two point oh. Now I do hey, remember pop, pop quiz to you: How many Democrats voted against Scalia's confirmation? I believe that would be zero. Ninety eight to zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, think um, I'm guessing that it's not going to be unanimous this time around. We're in a different era, and 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 that's there's a lot of hurt feelings still from the Democrats about the way Merrick Garland was handled, uh, the fact that they eliminated the filibuster for anything other than Supreme Court nominations will be. Is there any way they could challenge. go nuclear, full nuclear? Sure. No. Well, let's ask. We'll ask Leonard Leo about it. I mean, I, I I I can imagine that it can be attempted. On that note, we're joined by Leonard Leo with the Federal Society. Mr. Leo, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to give you this opportunity uh, right now here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast uh, to tell us uh, who Donald Trump's nominee is going to be. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, he's the president. It's his prerogative to name uh, who's going to be the next <laughs> Supreme Court justice. But I will say this. I will say this. Um, he he knows uh, the backgrounds and uh, general records of uh, a number of these folks who have been in the process. He's been very engaged and very interested. And I have to say, I'm very impressed with the extent to which uh, he's committed to get this right. Has uh, he met with, yeah. these, with these candidates in person? Well, again, it's, 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 his, it's his job to say who he's met with or who he hasn't met with. But I will say that the process is uh, very far along and that uh, there is a lot of uh, information in the hopper about who these people are and uh, what their records are like and um, what qualities they have uh, uh, to serve on uh, the Supreme Court. So I keep hearing uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch as, 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 a, as a clear front-runner in this. What can you tell us about him? First of all, never assume a front-runner. We've been down this road many times as presidents, and those things are fluid and dynamic and can change. But uh, getting to Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch is uh, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, which sits in Denver. He has a very, very distinguished background. He actually clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Byron White, another Coloradoan. Uh, he was in the Justice Department during the Bush administration, where he handled some very sensitive issues relating to the uh, war on terror. Uh, he has probably over 200 or so published opinions as an appeals court judge. Uh, they are extremely eloquently uh, uh, written. Uh, they're incisive, uh, understandable, clear, uh, opinionated. Uh, he has a distinguished background as an intellect, having gone to um, Columbia and Harvard and uh, Oxford. Uh, so he has uh, uh, quite an impressive record, uh, quite an impressive record. So we all remember back in the campaign, uh, I think it was the final debate, where uh, President Trump, now President Trump, said that if, uh, if he was elected, Roe v. Wade would be gone automatically, in his view. Uh, and he's since said, uh, uh, in reference to gay marriage, that it's established as law of the land. What kind of level of detail is he getting into? Does he care about these things? Is he right that one judge's confirmation here means the end of Roe v. Wade? Well, first of all, we have to put into context which vacancy this is. Uh, this is the Scalia vacancy on the court. And so the fact of the matter is that in all of these hot-button cases that people are talking about, putting on another uh, Scalia-like justice doesn't change the parity on the court, the balance on the court right, right now. So this is not the seat where 
you know, all of these different hot-button cases are, are, on, the, are on the chopping block. Uh, there may come a time where those issues get debated, uh, but this is not that seat. Um, that's not to say that, you know, these confirmations aren't important and that, uh, you know, there isn't an awareness that you want a justice who, uh, you know, is, uh, is going to be true to the Constitution. And the president's made it really clear, you know, what he wants in a justice. Uh, he always starts off these conversations by saying, I want someone who's got, who's extraordinarily talented and who's going to be respected by all. That's something he says a lot. He says he wants someone who's not weak, uh, by which he means he wants someone who's going to stick to his guns, right? He's going to decide cases the way they ought to be decided, to go wherever the law takes you. And then finally, uh, you know, under our Constitution, uh, you know, power rests with the people. And that was at the core of Justice Scalia's legacy as, as a justice on the court. Uh, as you saw from President Trump's inauguration speech, that's at the core of his agenda. And that's very much at the core of the process that he has implemented uh, to select uh, the next justice for the U.S. Supreme Court. So one thing we've heard a lot about with, with Judge Gorsuch, and I think you alluded to this, is his eloquence, the, the, the his power of his analytical and writing skills as being Scalia-like. Why is that important, and how much of a priority is it for folks like you who are invested in seeing this court move forward and, and seeing an originalist interpretation move forward to have someone who's a powerful communicator? Well, going all the way back to the summer, uh, when, when Mr. Trump came up with the concept of doing this list, which I thought was a brilliant concept, and as that list was developed... Uh, everybody was looking for people who uh, not only uh, knew how to find the right answers and would reach the right answers on questions of constitutional law and on questions of the role of the court, but also were, would be able to explain those positions in ways that are clear and understandable. Uh, obviously, if you want to move uh, our country's jurisprudence in the right direction, uh, you need to have people on the court uh, who are clear uh, in their thinking and in their writing, and who are going to be in a position to uh, educate uh, the broader legal community and the public at large uh, about what's at stake in these cases and about the importance of uh, applying uh, first principles uh, that, uh, that respect uh, the separation of powers and other aspects of our constitutional system. Of course, you look for people who are going to be eloquent in their writing and who are going to be clear in their writing, uh, because that's a part of the enterprise of judging, explaining why you're doing what you're doing. So looking ahead to the confirmation battle, uh, you do have some kind of, you know, some people on the left clamoring, saying that, 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 that no justice should be, should be approved because, you know, Garland didn't even get a hearing, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any consideration or isn't even f possible to extend the nuclear option to the Supreme Court to make it possible for Republicans to uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice. Kill off just, the filibuster just, altogether. Just 51 votes. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that's the direction things are headed in. So it's been very interesting. If you looked at comments by the left and Democrats right after the election, it, it did look like things were going to head in, those direction, in that direction because what they were saying was we're going to oppose – any nominee of the president's. But if you look at the past several days leading up to this meeting that the president just had with, uh, um, with 
Senator Schumer and Feinstein, as well as McConnell and Grassley. If you look at recent comments by Senator Schumer and other Democrat leaders, it's taken on a very different tone. What they're saying now is, look, what we would really like from the president is a mainstream candidate who can get some bipartisanal support along the lines of Alito and Roberts. Now, if that's the way they're defining the situation now, that's a little different from what we heard before, and I think is sort of moving things off of this um, this obstruction at any uh, at any cost uh, position that you, that there were inklings of early on. And part of the reason why I think things are starting to settle in that direction is is because um, it's the Scalia seat, and the history and custom and tradition is. You know, everybody wants to try to maintain balance on the court. So this is probably not the seat where you want to shoot all your cannons uh, if you're if you're in the opposition. Uh, now, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a fight, right? I mean, you know, this is a big deal. It's a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. There's going to be a lot of disagreement, a lot of debate. But I'm not sure it's going to turn out to be as disagreeable as people may have thought right after the election. But we'll see. But I think that's still very much up in the air. So one, one question, a, l- a little more broad than the Supreme Court. We, we have a president in, in right now. We, John and I talked about this a little bit earlier in, in, in the program. He tweets things at odd hours, and he, there's this flurry of executive orders and actions that are, that are coming out, his, his uh, threat to Chicago that they would send in the feds. Are you, as a constitutional legal scholar, a conservative legal scholar, are you are you confident that this is an executive who understands the limits of his own power, that he understands that there are things that the executive isn't supposed to or isn't allowed to do under the Constitution? You know, uh, there is no human being who would hold the office of the president who would not be challenged uh, by, uh, you know, the temptation of doing what you think is right um, and every president has always faced the temptation of going beyond, uh, you know, the commands of the Constitution uh, to do what, quote, needs to be done, right? And, you know, that's a temptation that President Trump is going to have just as much as every other president has ever had. So the relevant question is, has he put in place a team and a set of protocols, uh, and, and does he have a philosophy that helps him to resist that temptation as much as possible. I think he's got two things going for him in this regard. One is he's assembled a really great staff, you know, a staff that is really committed to limited constitutional government, okay, and understands the structural constitution, the limits on government power, including executive power. Secondly, if you look at his inauguration speech, right, he's starting from the premise, as I said before, that, you know, power ultimately rests with the people, not with Washington. Okay, and if that's the case, then if that's his philosophy, and I do believe it is, uh, when he is tempted uh, to go further than uh, perhaps people are telling him he should, um, uh, I think that's going to tug at him. Uh, I think that's going to tug at him from a pragmatic standpoint as well as from a normative standpoint. So, you know, look, time will tell, you know, whether um, whether there are. Uh, standoffs on on executive power, but I think that there's a very good foundation laid uh, for an, an adherence to limited constitutional government. The other thing I'd say about this is remember, you know, we're coming off an administration where there was a lot, a lot of debate about uh, about you know overreach by the executive. So with that context in mind, 
I do think there'll be a heightened awareness of the issue and of the problem. So uh, we, we'll let you go. You've, you've been very generous with your time. One more question, though. Uh, Got to ask you about this this question that's kind of consumed uh, the White House for the last twenty four hours or so. The, the, this notion uh, that three, five, up to five million people voted illegally, fraudulently in the uh, in the election. What? 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 Are you, I mean, you're a you're a brilliant conservative uh, mind. What? what where does something like this come from? And what do you think? You don't believe that, do you? I, I you know, look, I don't know. First of all, I, I think that uh, uh, this is a bit of a distraction from other things that we're doing right now and that are important. But Totally agree. But, but look, uh, there's been a debate about voter fraud in this country for a long time. Uh, and... Uh, this is nothing new. It may be that uh, people are paying more attention to it now and it's getting a little more heat, right, because the President of the United States is talking about it. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we've got an entire branch within the Justice Department that deals regularly with issues of voter fraud. And, And there's been a lot of, you know, voter fraud in the history of the United States over the course of the past few decades uh, in various parts of the country. What's the extent of it? Uh... How much of a problem was it in this election? Is it something that needs to be the focus of federal attention? Those are questions that I think um, I don't have the competency to answer. But um, I don't think one can uh, can say uh, that um, you know voter fraud is not a problem at all. It's really a matter of degree and how much time and attention and resources you want to spend on it. And that's well, going to be based on the extent of the problem, and, and frankly, I just don't have the bandwidth to know how how widespread the problem is. I would imagine if there were five million illegal votes cast in a single election, that would be a that would <laughs> that would warrant okay. uh, uh, some pretty dramatic uh, some pretty dramatic action. All right, Leonard Leo with the Federalist Society. We look forward to talking to you after this uh, after this nomination is made. Thanks. That was a pretty diplomatic answer, I sure. gotta say. He, 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 he's, he's a said, smart guy, a lot of yes, bandwidth in that brain. Yes. Uh, and and I, I, I think that there's an undercurrent. I think in in there's a, there's going to be discomfort with conservatives uh, about a lot of things Donald Trump says. Some for ideological reasons, some for just plain perception reasons. That that he's he's making a claim that it has no actual basis in fact, uh, and and it's going to take a lot of a lot of folks who spend a lot of time trafficking in facts. Look at Paul Ryan, the, yep. the, the, the self-described policy wonk. Who, he is now be, being confronted with this on a regular basis. And the fact that we're five days in and already you have the Republican Speaker of the House coming out and saying, no, I don't believe what the president is saying is actually accurate. That's remarkable. But, you know, Avery Miller, our, our producer, made a good point uh, in, in the break there that, uh, you know, we may say that nobody believes in it, nobody else in the West Wing or the congressional leadership yeah. or the kind of intellectual class. But there, there are a lot of people that, that do think there's, there's voter fraud mass on a massive scale. And I imagine after the president comes out and says what he's been saying, that, that the number of people believing that's going to increase. And I he, mean, told, he told David Muir millions believe, believe him. That doesn't make it a fact. No. But the fact of people believing it, I think, is also out there and undeniable. It is a fact. All right. I think on that factual basis, Rick, that we should put, put an end to this edition of Powerhouse Politics. We will be back with week two. What's going to happen? Week two of the Trump presidency. Uh, thank you for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to us on, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those wonderful places. Anyway, 
get, you know, subscribe, tell your friends about us. And also, uh, shout us, uh, shoot us a question on Twitter. You can get me at John Carl or at Rick Klein, and we will, uh, we will answer your tweeted questions on the next Powerhouse Politics. And it's only been a week. My God. <laughs> it's going to be fun. <laughs>